1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. It's on page 1217 in my Bible. <laughs> <laughs> um, here we go. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Well, thank you, Laura. Um, it's so good to have Laura here. Uh, well, last week, uh, when we uh, looked at 1 Peter, we saw how uh, the um, Peter taught the persecuted church in uh, Asia Minor to be ready for action and to be um, holy like Israel was in the Exodus, walking through the desert. And this, this whole letter um, is written with this overarching theme of exile. Peter is trying to get the Christians in Asia Minor to see that um, they are a bit like the Israelites uh, in, in, uh, were in Babylon when they were in exile. There's a similarity there, and they can learn from the Israelites. And in today's section from 1 Peter, he focuses on this theme of Christian love in a community experiencing exile. The focus isn't so much on how to love, although he does give some examples of what it looks like. Uh, rather, the focus is on where that capacity to love comes from and where they draw their strength from to love each other in a time of exile. And if we've learned anything in this time of the pandemic, it is that you can't really love as a Christian should love when you're socially distant or when you're actually not in each other's presence. You can't live authentically as a Christian. This, this time that we're in now, separated from each other, is not how it's supposed to be, is it? It's not how we're supposed to be as the church. And, and this is what Peter is saying here as well. Well, he's saying Christians need each other and love for each other is a sign of God's work in the community and in you. So I'm going to take us through verse by verse through this passage. I thought this is this kind of passage which really works well for that kind of sermon. So let's look at it verse by verse and we'll start off uh, with verse 22. Oh, here we go. Let's, uh, there we go. Fancy. All right, verse 22. In other words, you've been fully... Con uh, let, let me read it out first. Now that you have been purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. In other words, you've been fully converted as a Christian. You're purified through and through, so now start loving each other. For the Jews in the Old Testament, um, they purified themselves through certain rituals of washing that prepared them to participate in worship. But for the Christians in the New Testament, they became pure by repentance of sin. So, for example, James 4 verse 8 says, 
Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So there's that sort of metaphor of washing yourself to be purified there through um, uh, letting go of your sin. 1 John 3 verse 3 says that if we have hope in Jesus, we purify ourselves because we receive forgiveness of sins. So, of course, Christian baptism is a is a symbol of this purification, isn't it, that takes place, the washing away of sins. So, flowing out from this purification that Peter is talking about um, is obedience to the truth. And a central action, the, the central action in Christian obedience is love for one another. So Peter says, love one another deeply from the heart. Well, what does he mean by love? Because whenever you talk about love in church and in, in, when, you're, when you're thinking about Christian love, it's just so broad and so general and we hear it all the time. What are we actually talking about? Well, we're not just talking about being nice to each other at the end of church, or, you know, sharing a coffee and a, and, and, a, and a biscuit and being friendly. That's not really the kind of, I mean, that's, part of involved of what being loving is but that's not the kind of love that's just being nice isn't it rather he means holy relationships with each other that are based on god's character christians should love one another because this is what it means to obey the truth through faith in jesus christ we are set apart from the ways of the world we don't treat people with contempt or selfishly he says, you are set apart for sincere love, or the word is unhypocritical love. Christians should love one another because they've been converted to Jesus. And this conversion has involved being set apart by God, set apart in baptism, set apart by the Holy Spirit indwelling in you. You are morally set apart. So now, as a converted person to Jesus, who is spirit indwelled, morally set apart, a child of God, your character should be consistent with God's character. Well, let's turn to verse 23. Um, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of perishable through the living and enduring word of God. They have been born of imperishable seed from God. So this kind of love for one another is possible. God has literally literally spoken his powerful word into their life and transformed them having a perish from having a perishable perishable life which is a life that will um, decay to an imperishable life a life that will never decay God's imperishable seed causes us to be born again and produces his character in us that's the argument that Peter's putting forward here so just as an, a child inherits the DNA from their parents and they inherit characteristics, so too children of God inherit characteristics from God, um, God who is their father. My, my mother has olive skin, so I have olive skin. My, my father can curl his tongue, so I can curl my tongue. That's one of the classic genetic tests you do at school about uh, teaching about inheritance, uh, g- genetic inheritance, isn't it? God is love. He loves us with a perfect love. That's his characteristic as embodied in the life and death of Jesus. And he passes on this characteristic to his children through his imperishable seed. And to be clear, this imperishable seed, what is it? It's a kind of a weird concept. What's he talking about? Well, Peter explains. He says, it's God's enduring word. 
In the creation of the world, God generates life by his word. He says, let there be light. And there is light. Here Peter is saying God's enduring word is that imperishable seed that generates new life in followers of Jesus. God speaks his divine word. People are forgiven, transformed and born again. And their life and character changes from that moment on. Now Peter uses this imagery for a purpose. It's not just to explain a theological idea. But he's trying to help the persecuted Christians in Asia Minor to realize that they've got this um, solid foundation to build their lives on. A, they've got a, a stronger foundation than the corrupted world around them. And it also shows that, that while obedience matters so much for the Christian life, also God is at work in them. These two ideas work together and they're held in tension. So to put it another way, you could ask the question, how do I grow in godly character? And Peter's saying here, well, the answer is that you be obedient to God, but also God is at work changing you supernaturally. And those two things are true and are held together in, in, in tension. To understand this, Peter continues um, explaining his idea by discussing the opposite of this new life um, generated by God's imperishable seed. And he looks at the concept of perishable seed in verse 24 and 25. Keep disappearing. Sorry, camera magic. Let's look at verse 24. Um, For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. The life that comes from perishable seed, that comes from a human being, the life of flesh, does not produce um, this moral transformation. This kind of person can only display a glory in the way that a fragile and temporary flower of the field does. They look nice on the outside, but they will only last a short time before they wither. That's why the image that I had, if you saw the introduction to the um, live feed, that image of the, the flower, it's also on the home worship PDF, the flower withering away. Um, um, this is a quote from Isaiah 40. People born of human seed, the perishable human seed, they look nice on the outside, but they're dying just like a, a flower is. Even if a lot, person's life is extraordinary, even if they win the Nobel Prize or a gold medal at the Olympic Games, or even if they produce a smash hit album, they will eventually perish. But for those born of the imperishable seed, because the word of the Lord endures forever, they never perish but go into eternal life. And the power and benefit of that eternal life starts now. One of the um, <coughs> effects of that being is that your internal character transformation changes. And that leads to the love that Peter's wanting the Christians in Asia Minor to show to each other. So this contrast here between um, the glories of the world and the true glory of the imperishable seed is is what Peter's making. And remember, he's writing to a people in a context of the Roman Empire, the glorious and impressive Roman Empire. They were the greatest civilization the world had ever known, at least in that part of the world. But even the great Roman Empire would eventually fall and fade into obscurity unlike the eternal glories achieved by Christ's suffering. Peter is putting before his readers a set of options 
for who to show their loyalty. And it's not much of a comparison. One is perishable, the other is imperishable. Of course, the problem is the perishable glory of the world looks a lot more bright and shiny at first, whereas the imperishable glory of the new birth in Jesus Christ looks a lot more humble and, uh, uh, and, and up close. And it, it doesn't look that impressive at first. And it's only through wisdom and insight given by the Holy Spirit that one realizes which is greater. The wider context of this Isaiah 40 quote is quite significant. I just want to show it to you. Um, so if you look at that Isaiah 40 passage here, it, it actually is a really famous passage that's quoted in the Bible quite a lot. Um, and um, it's spoken by God um, through Isaiah to the Israelites when they were in exile in Babylon. And, um, you know, there's some great verses in here uh, that you, you would have heard in various places in the Bible and you might have even remember it from being sung or, or in various places. You know, like a, vo a voice call of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and the people will see together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then verse 8, this is where Peter's getting his quote from, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. This famous section from Isaiah tells of God's final salvation and it gives them hope um, to the Israelites that God's word stands forever and they can trust in him. And this is how he will save his people. This was spoken in the 6th century BC to the Israelites. And they were wondering what had happened to God. Where, why had he left them abandoned in Babylon? And Isaiah responds at the start of verse four, chapter 40 of Isaiah. It says, comfort, O comfort my people. And this is what Peter's saying to the Christians in Asia Minor. You should be comforted. He's, he's kind of evoking that wider whole chapter from Isaiah. This is the tone of, of what we're reading in 1 Peter. Peter is trying to give them hope and he's using the same logic as Isaiah. He contrasts the perishability of all mortal things and the incorruptibility of the Christian inheritance and hope. God is not going to abandon them. He's not going to forget his promises. And he's giving them assurance of their salvation. And this same assurance that was given to the Israelites in 600 BC and given to the Christians in the first century, still it applies to us to this day. This is why Mark's gospel opens, quoting Isaiah 40. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the promises made in Isaiah 40, as quoted in 1 Peter. God is going to reveal his glory. His word endures forever. So Peter sees that God's message to these 6th century BC Israelites stands as Christ's word to 1st century Christians because he recognizes that it is the spirit of Christ who revealed God's promises to Isaiah. So you can see why this theme of exile in 1 Peter is really, really important. Now, the question is for us, is um, 
how we should think about ourselves and in terms of this theme of exile. In the past few years, it's become really common, um, more and more common for the church in Australia and in the West in general, especially in America, to start thinking of itself as being like it's in exile in Babylon. So there's been a series of conferences that use this exile theme and, and uh, uh, articles written on this theme of the church being in exile in Babylon. And this is a bit of a shift, actually, because in the first 10 years of my ministry in the 2000s, that wasn't the image, the dominant image. The dominant image actually was that the church is like it's in Athens. Um, and the reference there was um, to um, Paul in, in Acts 17, um, preaching in Athens. And the idea was that then we were saying, oh, no, actually, we're living in a postmodern world where there's, there's many faiths and there's many ideas, different philosophies. And just like Paul in Athens, we've got to be like that as we communicate to the world and, and, and show, um, show the postmodern people how contemporary culture can relate to uh, how, the, how the Bible speaks into contemporary culture and make those connections. And, and so you started having churches uh, use that imagery and that name. So you had... Um, two famous churches in America, both called Mars Hill, totally unrelated. Uh, one led by Mark Driscoll and the other one led by the other celebrity preacher, Rob Bell. And so this big theme of we are in Athens was the theme of 2000 to 2010. But in the last 10 years, it's been more like this idea that we're in exile in Babylon. That's the way a lot of people are talking. And so you've got these, the, this book, The Benedict Option, that came out. It was a New York Times bestseller. And it was basically arguing uh, this idea that, um, um, this idea that uh, you know, the, the world is, the culture of the West is so fluid um, that, um, that it's like um, the church is at sea floating around in the ocean and, and, it, and, and it just needs to retreat inside like an ark, like Noah's Ark. Um, you know, that's what the Benedict option was about. That was the way it was suggesting, you know, the church should just retreat so that can, so Christians can live authentically in, this, in these changing times. Well, is that a good way to think about ourselves as Christians in Australia? Are we really in exile in Babylon? Is this analysis right? Or does it sound like Christians having a bit of a persecution complex? Is this a fancy way of pushing back and trying to say that actually we've got to stand up for our rights as, as a religious group? as a persecuted minority in Australia. Well, to the question of should we be thinking of ourselves as being in exile in Babylon, it all depends on what you mean by exile in Babylon. And here I, I want to present some, uh, some arguments um, that come from the Australian scholar David Starling. And he says that you could, to think of it a bit like this, he says, well, literally speaking, no, we're not in um, exile in Babylon. We're not in exile at all. We have a Pentecostal prime minister, for goodness sake. So that doesn't sound like Christians are in exile. If We've got a Pentecostal prime minister. So from a political perspective, um, we are not literally in exile. Also, if you look at most Christians in Australia, um, we maintain the freedoms that everyone else has. And many, if not most of us, are very comfortable economically. Australia is a safe and easy place to live for Christians. And this doesn't sound like the kind of hostile exile described in the Old Testament books of Daniel or Jeremiah, does it? But in the New Testament, in books like 1 Peter, we see the language of exile being used in different ways. 
in a metaphorical way. And the New Testament offers a, a range of ideas of how we're to think about ourselves being in exile. And this is helpful as we think and relate to this passage. And the, the New Testament says, in a sense, no, no longer are you in exile. But it also says a different metaphor. Secondly, it says, for a little while more, you're in exile. And then in, a, in another way, it also says, you're in exile as Christians more than we're used to. So we're, we're no longer in exile because for the Gentile believers in the New Testament, the image of the Babylonian exile was used for their, um, to describe how distant they were from God previously before they were Christians. They were distant from him. Paul says in Ephesians 2, Once you were far away, but now you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So they are no longer in exile from God. And neither are we if we say yes to following Jesus. But there's a second metaphor which is that um, for a little while more, you will be in exile. There's a second image where um, it says that Jesus has saved you and brought you home and you experience that now and not yet feeling. You are saved now, but you are not yet living in eternity with him where, where you get to fully realize your life free from evil, suffering and death. So the apostles tell us to think of ourselves as Christians, as a people whose true home is not in this age, but in the age to come. We are citizens of a heavenly city. So using this second metaphor for exile, we are currently in exile now. And for a little while longer, we will remain that way until Jesus returns. We have to endure like this before the time of our true homecoming. Remember from our 1 Peter reading from last week, the image of exile from verse 17 it says, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. So in that sense, we are like we're in exile in Babylon. We are, but we're also no more in exile than in 2020 than we were in 1020 or 20 AD. Christians are always in exile until... Um, we're in the new heavens and the new earth. Even if we are in Christendom in Europe, at the height of the Christian Roman Empire, or America in the 1950s during the heights of the, Bab of the Billy Graham <laughs> movement, Christians in these contexts are also in exile, even though may not feel like it because they're not yet um, in the new heavens and the new earth. But there's a third metaphor, and that is the idea that we're probably somewhat more than we're used to in exile. This is to use the language of exile to describe the jarring clash of values between Christians and the surrounding culture. And perhaps this is what church leaders in Australia have been talking about. You see in the Bible um, this, this the place Babylon, which no longer exists, it becomes a symbol for any human institution that demands allegiance to its idolatrous redefinitions of good and evil. When Christian ethics about sex, money and power are so alien to the surrounding culture, it can feel like you are exiles far from home. And the further we are in Australia away from um, being in a Christian culture, the more these basic Christian values leak out of our Western culture, Western Australian culture, our ethics, our politics all leaks out, and the more we will experience what it is to live as exiles in this third sense. So when we read Peter talking to the Christians in Asia Minor using 
uh, passages and parallels from the exile in Babylon. We should nuance our thinking about what it means to be in exile. We should not develop a persecution complex because that's just lame and not true, but we should realize that we are resident aliens. We are citizens of heaven. And we feel this dislocation because the widening values gap between Christians and the rest of, of society is widening. And, and the more reason we have to make sure we're not pulled along by the culture around us. And this is what 1 Peter is all about. And this returns us to this theme of love, where we started. We've got to love like Christians, Christians are supposed to love, in a Christ-like kind of way. Look at verses, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2. Um, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So since it, therefore, or since you have been born again by this imperishable seed, this enduring word of God, you should crave pure spiritual milk. Don't crave the things of the flesh, crave spiritual things. Crave pure spiritual milk, which are the things that nourish the Christian life and the Christian community. They include things like the knowledge of God, prayer, instruction in the gospel, faithful obedience, hearing God's word. We say at Mary Creek we want to nourish spiritual seekers and we know that to be able to do this, we need to be nourished as well. And we become nourished through pursuing these things that I just listed. If you desire to be spiritually nourished, then you can start getting rid, you must start getting rid of sinful behavior. That's what he's saying here, malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. It's like physical fitness. If you want to lose weight and get fit, it's partly about what you do and partly about what you stop doing. And one of the things you must stop doing um, is um, eating, eating badly and having an unhealthy life. You, you, you've just got to st- start trying to be healthy. So this kind of metaphor works with spiritual fitness. With spiritual fitness, stop your sinful actions. Early Christians spoke about stripping themselves of vices and clothing themselves with virtues. And that's what we've got to do, Peter's saying. Eliminate bad habits and develop good habits. Always remembering that because of God's imperishable seed that he's given to you through his enduring word, God is at work in you as well. Peter quotes Psalm 34 saying, Taste and see that the Lord is good. He's saying you don't do these things out of legal obligation. You do them because you know from taste testing that it's good for you. Life with Jesus is spiritually satisfying. So to finish, as Christians, as we feel like maybe that we are in exile in Babylon, put your energy into spiritual nourishment and growth. And as we do this, we will attain the hope of our salvation.